Corinthians, uh, looking specifically at Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. And we've been spending the last few weeks just kind of going through this letter. This is 1 Corinthians, but we also know that this is probably 2 Corinthians because we know that there's a previous conversation that has happened, but we have 2 Corinthians here, which is our 1 Corinthians. Are you with me so far? No. Good. All right. So what's happening is that Paul is taking time to respond to certain questions that the church has asked him about how to kind of live Christianly, how to actually see the implications of the Christian faith into certain social and cultural issues. So in one sense, it's like reading somebody else's mail, right? But in another sense, there's a lot of overlap for us today. It's a bit of a messy church, a lot of just kind of craziness, a lot of diversity in the church, a lot of division or potential division around issues. And Paul's answering questions, trying to get them to understand that there's a church planted in this city, but there's a little bit too much of the city starting to kind of creep into the church. And he's starting to remind them of some of these things. So today, as we jump into chapter 8, for the next few chapters throughout this letter, Paul is doing a little bit of a Q&A with the church. And the topic this morning is that he's responding to questions about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Some of you are like, finally. <laughs> finally. Your notebooks are out. You're like, yes. This is the one I've been waiting for, right? Help me understand if I should be eating meat sacrificed to idols. Probably none of you are like, finally, this is the one, right? But what we are going to see is that although that specific topic doesn't carry a lot of weight culturally for us, Theologically and spiritually, we're going to see that this is a very helpful case study for navigating gray areas in the Christian life. Navigating things that are not kind of black or white and that we can't really find a Bible verse for. How much of life is like, oh, the, uh, this is my search engine for life, right? And you're like, you go in there and you're just like, that's not here, Right? And then we're left to kind of navigate, how do I make decisions that are Christianly, as followers of Jesus, how do I understand moral decisions in my own lifestyle that the Bible does not address? So that's what we're going to see from this specific topic. It's a helpful case study for that, where the Apostle Paul is going to help us move from just thinking about the what of Christianity and moving to the how we live the Christian life. So the context about meat. What was going on in that context? Well, meat was a rare part of the the ancient Near Eastern diet, the first century diet, and it was a delicacy. But also, the butcher of those main cities was also the temple. And so often what would happen is you would have different kind of religious temples, and they would have ceremonies and sacrifices, and meat would be offered in those sacrifices. Some of it would be used for the ceremony and kind of burnt on the altar as part of worship. And then the rest would actually go to the town market and be sold in the market for families to buy and take home and eat. Most families didn't have access to meat or unless they were were farmers, right, in in that agrarian setting. So most would actually just buy their meat from the town market. But the early church, knowing that, is now questioning, can we eat that meat? Is that okay? Like, can we still, in good conscience still eat the meat that may have, don't even know necessarily if it was, but it may have been used in a pagan temple for sacrifice. That's the question here. The the church is left wondering, is that okay? Or what if a friend invites me over and they serve me, you know, shawarma, 
and that shawarma was offered sacrifice. Like, can I take that? What if I get invited to like a social event or a wedding or a party and it's in like the party room of the temple of the pagan gods, right? Like, can I eat it there? Can I go there, right? So you start seeing it making a little bit more sense for us as we start to think about the relevance of this kind of question. And why it was a big deal, bigger deal to them than it is to us about this meat thing is that there were a lot of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the early church. And they had very, very different backgrounds as far as how they understood ritual sacrifice, specifically around food. So if a Jewish Christian got saved in in, in the first century and started to do life in Christian community with other Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, it was hard for them because what Paul's going to show us is that they were of weak conscience. Meaning, eating meat sacrificed to idols violated something in their conscience because of their history. Because where they come from, there's some serious value and significance to what we do with ritual sacrifice. But Gentile Christians are like, this meat tastes good, baby. Who cares? Let's go for it, right? Because they don't have the same background. They don't have the same context culturally about that. So Paul's going to talk about those with strong conscience, on this topic, and those would be Gentile Christians who are just like, hey, we're from pagan culture. You should have seen what we did with other stuff, right? Forget about meat. Let's just eat it. It tastes great. So who's right here, the Jewish Christian or the Gentile Christian? Paul's answer is going to drive us to think in a nuanced, kind of complex way about this topic. Now, here's why this is going to land for us, and here's why it's going to, we're going to feel this this morning, not because of the meat sacrificed to idols. Here's why we're going to feel it. Because today, we live in one of the most polarized and tribal yet dogmatic cultural moments of recent history. Like, we are so tribalized around things that ultimately, when we really get down to it, do not matter more than things that actually matter more. We are forced every day to think in this either-or world, this binary thinking where you and I are conditioned every single day to believe the lie that there are only two possible sides on every single issue, and guess what? You better choose one, right? And if if you aren't for something, you absolutely must be what? Against it, right? We are conditioned culturally. We can't just blame it on the internet. The internet doesn't help. But culturally, this is where we are. We must choose right or left. We must choose right or wrong. We must choose good or bad, for or against on every single issue. Now, this definitely is aggravated by social media for those of us who are on it. Social media is literally designed as non-nuanced, abbreviated statements about weighty topics. Like, if you just say that about social media, you can be like, that probably sounds like a bad idea, doesn't it? like really weighty, important things. Let's have the most non-nuanced, abbreviated characters or 14-second videos on some of the most controversial moral and ethical topics and then give it to everyone. Like, that just sounds like a terrible idea. Yet here we are, (laughs) right? Scrolling, non-nuanced, abbreviated, hot-button comments on things that actually do matter. And the algorithms are quite literally designed to keep us in a stream of thinking and not be exposed to alternative options, alternative perspectives on these 
topics. So we take the most charged, controversial things, then we get stuck in one stream of it, and we live in an echo chamber, and then we're not even able to understand the complexity or the nuance on a topic, and then we wonder why we're not doing very well as a culture, having dialogue about things that matter. I saw a study a couple weeks ago that most comments, like it's, it's overwhelmingly most comments, on social media platforms are negative, disagreement, or outrage. So the platforms are literally designed to have us just make, I, I disagree. And you're like, okay. And then we just like go about our day, right? Like that's what it's doing to us and it's everywhere. This either or thinking, the binary that you must be on one side of an issue or the other. Are you a dog person or a cat person? You cannot be both. I actually think this one's legit. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm kidding. That would go against everything that we're talking about. Are you a dog person or a cat person? I don't know. I kind of like both of them. And you're like, no, you don't. What? The flies are back. That was in my eyeball. I'm not a fly person. Oh, my word. Pray for me. Gosh. I, they haven't been here. They haven't been here for weeks. Anyway, okay. You're either a dog person or a cat person. You're either a vegetarian or you love torturing animals. You're either a conservative or a liberal. God forbid you choose any other political thinking around anything, right? You're either pro-choice or you hate women. You're either feminist or you're sexist. You're either pro-vax anti-vax. You're either pro-Israel, pro-Palestine. You're either a Calvinist or an Arminian. God forbid on any of those issues we ever stop to ask the question, are there more than two options? We don't do it because we're too busy building these walls and defending our position because we have been convinced and conditioned that it's always only for or against a topic. And Paul is going to draw our eyes to this question, have we ever stopped to consider the gray? Have we ever stopped to consider the nuance, the implications of moral decisions in a more holistic way, not just in these little kind of vacuums of tribalism? And also, I, I, my background's in philosophy. Philosophers actually call this binary thinking a fallacy. Like, it's not even good thinking. Like, it's actually not even good reasoning. And we have entire platforms built around us just being terrible philosophers, Okay? So I want you to be a better philosopher as you leave here and a theologian this morning. That's what we want to do. We want to move against this, okay? So now let's listen to Paul's answer on this question. They write him and they're like, so what's the deal? Can we eat this meat? Watch Paul's answer, the first nine verses. Now, about food sacrifice to idols. He's like, all right, I'll answer you now, right? We know that, and he quotes them. We all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, though, and love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. Just calling for just intellectual humility. Be humble. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now he goes on to the topic. About eating food sacrificed to idols, then. We know that an idol, quotes them again, is nothing in the world. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and lords, just in culture, right? He's talking about just kind of a pluralistic society. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. 
However, not everyone knows this. This is very interesting. Not everybody has this knowledge. Not everybody knows that or lives according to this. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, right, is defiled. They can't. They can't bring themselves to do it. Food, though, will not bring us close to God. All the vegans in here are like, hmm, I disagree. (laughs) I'm kidding. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we are no better if we do eat. Here's verse 9. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak, to the weak of conscience. Now, this is very Paul, because he's all over the place, right? In the Greek, it's way, it's way prettier. In English, you're like, Paul, what are you talking about, right? So here's what's happening here. Notice he doesn't just come out the gate and go, hey, about food sacrifice to idols, stop it, right? Don't eat it or do eat it. He doesn't turn to the Jewish Christians and go, get over it, stop being a legalist, eat, be merry, right? And he doesn't say to the Gentile Christians, like, cut it out, that's wrong, you know, make sure you have ritual cleanliness, cleanliness around your meat, okay? He doesn't say either of that. Instead, he actually goes and spends three more chapters unpacking the complex kind of spiritual, social, and moral layers to this topic. So his answer, if you wanted to just like, what is Paul's answer? His answer is, yes, you can eat it, but. (laughs) And then he goes on for the next couple chapters, and he just kind of like, he just like threads out some of the nuances of it. And this makes an important point for us, that the Christian life can't be reduced to a clean list of do's and do nots. It can't be reduced to binary categories of this is only always good and this is only always bad. In the Christian life, there is lots of can I, should I, is this wise, is this helpful, does this actually build up my faith in others Or does it distract from and tear down my faith or others? And there's no Bible verses for some of the topics that would make us pause and ask those questions. Are you with me on that so far? That's what Paul is trying to get our eyes attuned to here. It's not about following a religious set of rules here. It's about going the way of Jesus in all areas of life. Now, are there clear yes, no do's, do's, do nots within the Christian ethic? Of course there are. Of course, there's, there's, there's many of them. Definitely includes right and wrong. There are things that are clearly laid out in Scripture about how we approach all of the things about our daily life, for sure. But what about the issues that aren't? That's the question here. How do we think Christianly? How do we think the same way after Christ on issues that are not directly addressed in Scripture? That's the question. How do we make those kinds of decisions? Sometimes, historically, this has been known as kind of talking about essentials of the Christian faith and the non-essentials. There's a really old saying from the early church, and it's in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. See how it kind of has three buckets? Like, there are essentials of the Christian faith where we have to, like, no, no, like, these are, these are, we need unity in these things or else you're not Christian, Right? But then there's non-essentials that are like, hey, you have liberty. Like, these are not a violation of clear Christian doctrines or teaching. And then in all things, charity. Culturally, this is not our approach in all things, in all opinions, in all perspectives at all. So Paul is calling the church back to this kind of thinking. To pose the question to you and I, 
which hills are actually worth dying on. Because if you and I don't decide which hills are actually worth dying on, guess what? We're going to be running around dying on any and every hill we find. And that is a bad look for followers of Jesus, and it's a bad look for the Christian community. That's what Paul's getting at. He's trying to safeguard against division on things that don't matter that much. He's trying to say, hey, listen, you have freedom to disagree in some things, but do it agreeably. Do it with charity. Don't do it in a way that you're going to take your convictions on things that are non-essential, and you're going to actually make, you know, pu push it on other people. That's what he's getting at here. So today, lifestyle topics like drinking alcohol, not in excess, because I mean, Scripture's clear on that, but drinking alcohol, enjoying the occasional cigar. Like, you can't find a verse for that, right? How you and I spend our time and our money. Like, yeah, there's principles, but there's no, like, I, don't, I can't get a budget from in here, right? I mean, should we read Harry Potter? Because they've got wizards. I've had conversations with people because they don't want to read Harry Potter because there's wizards, and then they go and sit and watch the extended versions of all of the Lord of the Rings, and there's wizards. <sighs> no, we're not doing it. Let's keep going. How, how much time should we spend on hobbies and sports and recreation? Like that, I, I don't, it's not, like, I don't know, I can't, right? Can't find it here. How, do, how should we spend our money? How should we dress? How formal? How informal? Where and when? Should we wear a hat in the house of the Lord? Like these are all, all things that you're like, I, uh, uh, I don't know. This requires a lot of like unpacking and principles and discussion. Should Christians do yoga? I, how should we educate our kids? Public school, private school, homeschool. Let's fight about it, right? Should we watch R-rated movies? I don't know, they're usually pretty good, right? Should we listen to non-Christian music? Who should we vote for? Like, show me, right? How should we approach technology? How should we approach reproductive technology in the Christian life? Like, there are so many areas of life that we cannot simplistically just flip here and find a verse that tells us how to live. So how do we do this? Well, the Bible calls this wisdom, it calls it discernment. And Paul's trying to draw our eyes back from kind of the distracting things of which side are you on to? Are we living life discerning the will of God as we follow after Jesus? That's what he's getting at here. Sometimes uh, scholars have called this Christian liberty or Christian conscience. Um, if you remember anything from Pinocchio, Disney's Pino Pinocchio would be the best example. Jiminy Cricket famously says, always let your... Conscience be your guide. Tom McLeggan, wow. Incredible. Nailed it. Always let your conscience be your guide. Now, that, that can be good advice, but the Bible actually teaches about the human conscience that it is a, it's like a compass, a moral compass that's been given to all human beings. It's been put in the human heart by God, but the conscience can be seared. The conscience can be like uncalibrated. The conscience can be damaged too. So, so it's not just, hey, always follow your conscience. It's like, no, no, are, do we have a healthy conscience? Do we have a conscience that's aligned with the reality of God's truth and goodness and beauty and value? That's the question. And so the Bible shows up and says, hey, you, your, your conscience can be a terrible guide, but it also can be a guide that is going to lead us to life. 
And the Christian life invites us to actually have a renewal of our mind, our thinking, and our heart. Our conscience can be recalibrated so that the compass of our moral decisions, even if there isn't a direct thing or a verse that we can pluck out, our compass and our conscience is going to lead us the way of Jesus. That's what's happening here. We can have it recalibrated. And notice that Paul quotes them. Because he's writing this letter, right? And he quotes them. And he says, hey, all of us possess knowledge. Uh, idols are nothing. We already know that, right? And they, hey, there's only one God. So he's like quoting them because they've written him. And what I think is happening here is one group, the Gentile Christians, who, are, who have no problem with this. They're just like, come on. Like, why are you so uptight about this thing? They're writing Paul being like, hey, listen. Like, all of us possess knowledge. Like, we're good. We know this. We know better. Like, the people who are making this a thing, like, they should just be quiet. Like, why are they making a big deal? We know that idols aren't nothing. They're not, they're not even real. They're just statues. They're not, they have no real power except for the power we give them. So what's the big deal, right? And then, hey, there's only one God. We already know that. We have really, really good doctrine and theology. So what's happening is one group, probably the strong conscience, Gentile Christians, are saying, come on. There's one God. Eat. Be merry. Like, enjoy the meat. It's great, right? But there's another group that in their conscience, because of their context or their background or their story, they're actually feeling that that would be a violation of what is right and good and true to them. And so, so Paul's just acknowledging, now listen, like, hey, uh, you're missing the key. Is this helpful to your brothers and sisters in the Christian community? That's the question. He's taking their attention and their eyes off of their rights. Hey, I'm free. I can eat this meat. It's my right. I can do this. He's taking their attention off their rights and actually asking, is it loving in the way that we're treating others? And that's so radical for today. Because in our hyper-individualism, nobody can tell me what to do. I'm going to live my truth. Right? I'm going to decide what's good for me. Right? If you come and try to like, bind me by your moral standards, get out of here. Nobody's an authority over me except for me. And some of that might be creeping in here with the Gentile Christians. They're like, man, listen, like, I'm a Christian. I don't mind eating this meat. That's your problem. Get out of here. Right? And so there's a little bit of division here that's happening. And I think here's what Paul is doing. And this is the principle for us here. He's pulling the church, he's trying to pull the church from two extremes back to kind of like a balanced community value of love for one another, of actually like hearing one another, understanding each other's perspective, and then loving one another as we think about what decisions we're going to make when we're together. That, that's what's happening here. And he's trying to pull from two extremes. The one would be like those of us who kind of lean towards legalism, right? Legalism always puts up red tape where God hasn't. And it takes non-essentials and makes them essential. Or it takes open-handed issues that are like, yeah, I guess, ah, I guess a little gray. And there's no gray for a legalist. Everything is black and white, right? It's simple. Everything fits in to either this is Christian or non, right? I read a, an article um, that was, uh, so Martin Lloyd-Jones, Charles Spurgeon, during that era of the late 1800s, Charles Spurgeon was, was arguing with his church about whether it was Christian to get your boots blackened, like get them polished. His answer was like, I don't care. Go bleach them. Stop arguing about it, right? And, and, and so what's happening is like gray areas, there's no such thing as gray for a legalist. So we put up the tightest amount of red tape as possible. And their freedom from sin becomes an excuse to police others' freedom. That's what legalism does. That talks to some of us in here. But the other extreme is kind of a liberalism when it comes to the Christian life. 
you're kind of tempted. You, you, like, you flirt with just ripping all red tape off because you kind of get a thrill. You're like, oh, I'm going to rip all red tape out of here, right? There's no black and white. Everything's gray, baby. Just like sit in the gray, man, right? Right? So I mean, who knows? You know? I don't know. We don't know. Nobody knows, right? And we're just kind of like, ah. Okay? That's, that's kind of like liberalism. It leans away from black and white. I don't like black and white. I don't live. I don't, I don't have your categories, right? So what happens with liberalism, though, is that there actually are clear categories. And so we want to just, like, ignore that and delete that. And with liberalism, what ends up happening is the freedom from sin that I feel as kind of a, a liberal Christian becomes freedom to sin. And we start to argue about which sins are permissible. Can I go this far? Can I do that? And that's, that's what's happening here. And notice, he tells both groups, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Why? Because pride is the root of both of these, these things. Pride is the root of a legalistic heart, and pride is the root of a liberal heart. Because it's about me. It's about what I have decided is good or bad or right or wrong. And then I tell other people what that is or isn't. And so you have to succumb to my definition of that. That's pride. And notice what he says. Knowledge puffs up. That's not a good word. That puffs up is like you got a big head and you got a small heart, right? That's what's happening here. Knowledge is about what we think and what we know, but love is about how we live. Paul's not saying be anti-knowledge. The Christian faith is very heady. There's lots of really deep, profound, intellectual worth to the Christian faith. But he's saying that an arrogant faith, pride, is not a good look for Christians. It lacks humility. It lacks the reality that we are lifelong learners, pilgrims throughout this life, that will change our perspectives on things sometimes. We should. If you haven't changed your perspective on something, even in the last year, you're not growing. That's what Paul's getting at here. You're not changing, right? And so he's showing us that that is not a good look. Being so certain about our categories and lacking humility and grace towards others that might disagree with us on these topics. So we can't miss. There's something fundamental here before we apply it. That the Christian life isn't primarily about beliefs and behavior. It's about becoming. It's about who we are becoming. And we miss that sometimes. Because I, I, I mean, I hang out in circles where there are people with amazing theology. They're just kind of jerks sometimes. And you're like, I don't know. I, I agree with you, kind of. But you can be right about something and be so wrong in the way you go about it. Amen? Like it just, I don't know. It's like your fruit of the, the fruit of your knowledge matters. Like if you like have really good beliefs and you're like kind of nailing like Christian doctrine 101, but you're just kind of a jerk, I don't even know. Like I'm like, maybe, maybe the beliefs are wrong. Either that or there's a severe character issue and you really need a tune-up on your heart, right? That's what Paul's getting at. Like, this is not about beliefs and behavior. It's about who are we becoming? Are we experiencing this kind of radical, subversive change of our identity as men and women so that we are becoming people who love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then because of that, we go out and love others as ourselves? That's what this is boiled down to. And this is exactly why Jesus' invitation to follow him. Listen, some of you, you're not followers of Jesus, or you're still checking Jesus out, and you've come to believe that following Jesus is about getting perfect theology in your head. But when Jesus invites people to follow him, he doesn't start with, hey, what do you believe? Have you nailed the systematic theology quiz? He doesn't start there. He doesn't start with, what do you believe? He doesn't even start with, like, what are you doing? What, are you what is your behavior like? He doesn't start there. He starts with, what do you want? 
And why do you want it? What is the chief end of your heart? What is the deepest desire? What are you looking to in your life to satisfy you and give you life to the full? And then his answer is, I'm the only one who can give that to you. And he calls our eyes away from all of those other objects that are competing for us becoming people of love. His invitation isn't, what do you believe or what do you know? It's what do you want and why do you want it? Now come with me. Why is that important? Because our identities are shaped most by what we want and what we choose to love, what we give our lives to. James K.A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love, and he unpacks this exact same thing about the power of the gospel. And here's what he says. Jesus is a teacher who forms our very loves. He isn't content to deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. Springville, the gospel changes who we are because it changes who our life belongs to. That we become people with rightly ordered loves. That we're loving the right things in the right way in the right timing. And then we go and live all of life like that. So what Paul is doing is he's drawing their eyes back and he's saying right here that love, not knowledge, is the true measure of the Christian faith. Now some of us, depending on the tradition we come from or like the books we like to read, that's not what we would believe. And others of us, we love the love part. It's like, yeah, man, God is love. But we don't know that there's actual knowledge and truth that then renews our mind and recalibrates the conscience of our heart, right? So here's the thing. You know that you've understood Christianity, not when you master all the core doctrines and read thick theology books or can win really cool arguments, but you know that you've understood Christianity when you live a life of properly ordered loves and then devote your lives to that end. You with me on that? That's this. So he's just trying to get them not to be so distracted. Not that knowledge, he's not anti-knowledge, anti-intellectual, not at all. Not at all. But he's saying that that is not the chief end of the Christian faith. True knowledge to be Christian is that that knowledge would lead us to the fruit of love in our lives. That's what he's getting at here. So if our so-called knowledge leads us to tear people down, ridicule other viewpoints, and a posture that lacks love, it's probably not Christian knowledge. Like that, that's, that's just what's happening here. It's possible to be right about something and be so wrong in the way we go about it. It's possible to use knowledge as a sword instead of a scalpel. And Paul's just calling the church's attention back to the fruit of our knowledge, the fruit of our beliefs. I really do think, especially in kind of like the ideological war of today's culture, I think it is easy to buy the lie that Christianity is about being right instead, about doing, instead of it being about doing good. And we've got all sorts of issues that we can yell about how right we are and stuff, or we can understand that that is just an exercise in futility and actually go follow after the way of Jesus and go and do good to the glory of God and for our fulfillment. Are you with me on that? That's what's happening here. Bless you. Now, knowledge is vital, but it's not enough. We can't reduce the Bible to a search engine for life. And often we do, right? So if you're on the, like, the legalist side, you would say that there is actually everything that we need for life, right? B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. That is the most unbiblical thing you could say about what the Bible is. But if you just like that, B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me, right? I didn't grow up singing that because I didn't grow up like in the church. But anyway, 
but, but that, that's what we think. It's like, this is the search engine for life, every single topic. And then we realize it doesn't have every single topic. So the question is, what is the Bible for then? If the Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know, I would argue it does tell us everything we need to know. And that's the difference. Paul talks about this in another letter to a young man named Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And watch what he says about this. This is really, really important for how we understand how to navigate the Christian life. Verse 14, he says, So for as for you, uh, which by the way, when Paul starts there, it's usually because he had a bad example of like, don't do that. And that's exactly this. He's like, don't be like those guys. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and you have firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy, from childhood, you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you see right there? That's subtle. Do you see what scripture is for? When we use scripture properly to see what it's for, it's for wisdom. It's for wisdom for salvation. So if the Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know, it does tell us everything we need to know about life and purpose and morality and destiny. I mean, it's all wrapped up in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for four things, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man and woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So we see right there a different picture of what the Bible is for, that it's for wisdom. It doesn't answer every question we have, but it does give us wisdom, principles to go and apply in the real stuff of life. Now, wisdom is different than information, right? We know that. Anybody who knows wise people, they're like, man, like, yeah, they know stuff, but it's just like something about them, right? Something about their character, something about their posture. They're just so wise, right? It's not even about what they know. It's about how they apply what they know to stuff that they didn't know before, right? That's, that's wisdom. And that's exactly this. This is shorthand for like wisdom and wise living, being kind of skillful activity to live our lives Christianly is what Paul's getting at here. And remember, several times Paul's talked about wisdom throughout the letter because he's not seeing a community that's fostering and cultivating wisdom here in Corinth. They're wrapped up with stuff that doesn't matter. They're arguing about who's got the best kind of knowledge on a topic, but he's pulling them back and saying, no, no, that's not what God's word is for. That's not what the Christian faith leads us to, that our knowledge of God's word leads us to wisdom, that we grow in wise living as we go the way of Jesus. So here's what this means. Good news for us. When scripture's not clear on something, Scripture still gives us what we need to make wise decisions. That's this. That's what Paul's bringing them back to. But also notice, he says it's not just about info or knowledge, it's about love. And so there's an element of wisdom that comes from doing life in community. And so he's trying to get these Christians who are very different, thinking differently about these topics, to be like, you know what? Wisdom actually is cultivated by sitting across the table from people that you disagree with, on non-essential things, and you can actually start to learn from one another. And it's in that process of disagreement that wisdom is cultivated as a people. So it's not just about information and knowledge, it's about experiencing those that we actually disagree with on some of these topics. The other word that the Bible uses, especially throughout Proverbs, is discernment, right? Sometimes you like, we just like reduce discernment to like just like the spiritual, spiritually 
side of it, of like discernment. It's just like people just walk around, they've got like antennas for like spiritual things, and they're so discerning, right? But discernment biblically is definitely more than that because a discernment is this ability to survey life and make wise decisions and also to give wise counsel to people who are trying to just figure out, what do I do? Where do I study? Who do I marry? Where do I live? What job should I have? Like, how should I spend my money? What should my budget look like? All those questions. A wise, discerning person can, can help and come alongside us and walk with us as we make these decisions, as we survey kind of what is, what is good, what is better, and what is best. That's discernment. That we recognize that life is full of multiple courses of action. And we can weigh the pros and the cons, and we can learn to think God's thoughts after him in every area of life. So here's a couple examples of that. Psalm 119, verse 66 says, teach me good judgment and knowledge. See that? Knowledge is tied to the good judgment, to be able to actually see different courses of life and make good judgment calls about life. Proverbs 14, 6, the mocker or the fool seeks wisdom and finds none, because they're a fool, <laughs> But knowledge comes easily to the discerning. See that? That there's a discerning posture or heart. And knowledge actually comes easily to those who are discerning. One example from the New Testament in 2 Peter. Chapter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power, God's power, has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and goodness. In other words, developing the ability to think Christianly about every area of life, whether there's a Bible verse for it or not, is what Paul is calling the Christian community back to. And watch how he finishes in these last four verses, verse 9 to 13. We'll apply this and we're done. Verse 9, but be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. Okay, we already read that, but watch what he follows it up with. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to also go eat food offered to idols? So he's talking about like modeling the example here. Like, wait, if this violates somebody else's conscience and they see you doing it, they're going to be like, I guess that's the Christian thing to do. I should go and do it too. And that's going to actually violate their conscience because they're not there with you. They're not there on what that topic is. So the weak person, the brother or the sister for whom Christ died is ruined by your knowledge. So when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat again so that it won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Paul just said, I love you so much that I will become a vegetarian. That is love. That is love right there. It's like, listen, if eating this delicious steak is going to cause you to fall, I'll eat asparagus. I love you. I love you that much. Okay? All jokes aside, though, notice what he's doing. He's saying that that actually matters more than my right to eat the steak. That's what he's getting at. My right. I, hey, I mean, if you have a problem with the steak, don't eat it. That's fine. I'll eat the steak. No, no. He's saying actually modeling this to one another, a posture where we're actually putting each other first and thinking about the ways that we may actually have weaker conscience about things. If I have a stronger conscience about something, I need to at least be aware that there may be other brothers and sisters around me who don't land the same way on that topic. That's what he's getting at here. And that's radical for us, right? it does shift the whole focus from my individual rights to how loving and considerate I am of others. He's just saying, if you have freedom in an issue, that's not like 
completely forbidden by scripture, if you have freedom on a specific issue, don't flaunt it. Don't go and demand it of others. Don't go and bind somebody else's conscience with yours. That's what he says is the stumbling block here. Now, often stumbling block, you hear that all the time, right? That's a stumbling block for me, right? But usually stumbling block is misused because it's usually someone who's offended by somebody else's freedom in an issue, and then they're using it to say, you're a stumbling block to me. But notice what Paul just said about being a stumbling block. He's saying, if your freedom on an issue is a stumbling block to somebody else, cut it out. That's what he's getting at. It's very different. It's the flip side of it. So being a stumbling block isn't an excuse for a legalist to go and referee somebody else's life. That's not what stumbling blocks are. Stumbling blocks are us being considerate of any way that we may be violating a brother or sister's kind of moral categories depending on where they are in their Christian faith. Amen? That's what's happening here. And he does the same thing in Romans 14. The exact same thing. You can go read it this week. He talks about arguing over opinions, kind of like non-essential issues. And then in verse 19 to 21 in Romans 14, he says this. Listen, it won't be up there. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food, okay? Or any other issue. You can put it in. Do not tear down God's work because of vaccines or politics or any other issue. Like, just bring them, bring them all in. All the controversial ones that we don't want to talk about, right? Bring all those ones in there. Don't tear down God's work because of those things. Don't do anything that makes your brother or your sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep them between yourself and God. Like, there's a verse for that. That's amazing. It's like, no, I know if you feel convicted about this, but there's nothing clear in Scripture about this being forbidden, keep it to yourself. That's convicting. It encourages us to ask, how helpful or unhelpful are these issues with my faith? And honestly, Springville, I think one of the most powerful witnesses the church can have today in our culture is to be the most non-triggered, non-outraged people around in such a divided tribal culture. And that we would be people who can hold diverse perspectives on non-essentials and then just pursue a life of discernment and wisdom together. A people who refuses to participate in the polarization and the tribalism and ultimately the dehumanization of other people in our culture. It means that we get to just say, listen, we're going to agree what we're going to disagree about. We're going to agree to disagree. And we're going to do it agreeably. We're going to agree about what we're going to fight over and what we're not going to fight over. And Romans 14, 22 just says, I'm going to keep it to myself. Right? And we're going to be focused, what Paul later in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15 calls of utmost importance, and that is Christ and his gospel. I remember Eugene Peterson once said that wisdom is the biblical term for on earth as it is in heaven. And I love that. That we would be a people who would live and pursue lives where we are taking wisdom and discernment and taking complex, nuanced things and walking in a way that we are just bringing more of the kingdom of God to earth and that we can pray, Lord, let your will and purposes be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray for us to this end. Father, first of all, I thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. That, Lord, nothing, no power, No temptation, no desire, 
has power over us anymore because we are free in you. And it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I pray for each of us here that struggles with topics that we, we would love more clarity on some of these nuanced, complex things in our day. But they're just not there. I pray that you would continue to cultivate wise, discerning hearts in each of us. And ultimately, I pray that we would not be a church, a community of people that are divided over non-essentials. That you would keep our eyes on the main thing. That we would strive and fight to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is you, Jesus. That we would follow after your way. And that as we do it, you would cultivate wisdom in each of our hearts. I pray for unity in the church, not just here, but the church at large in a culture that is so divided, where there are so many options to divide over, so many tribes that we can decide to belong to, that, Lord, we would only see you and that we would follow after you as there is one Lord, and that is you, Jesus. So we love you and we need you in all things. We ask that you would continue to cultivate this in us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.